Is there a problem with fans at Oklahoma and Oklahoma State that might be negatively affecting their school's football play? Plus, something in the government that should not be there, and I'm going to tell you why we should get rid of it. Plus, what to do about Kyrie Irving with the Brooklyn Nets. This is the gray area. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Grayson Singleton, and this is the first time I've done a podcast only for this show. I've been doing a little bit of YouTube stuff, a little bit for Okali TV, but for at least for this week, we're going to return to our normal format. And let me start with this. If if you know me or if you've been following the show, you know I'm a Yankees fan, and I'm glad this season for the Yankees is over. So last week, the Yankees lost in the wild card game of the American League to the Boston Red Sox. And look, I don't first first of all, first of all, I now sympathize with Dallas Cowboys fans on the fact of always being expected to do exponentially better than they end up doing. I actually can sympathize with you now. Because the New York Yankees, with the highest payroll in Major League Baseball, seems to always struggle with something. Now, last season, there were a lot of injuries. We get all that. And there just wasn't enough time for them to really resurrect their season, even though they got to, I believe it was the Division Series last year. And then, of course, cheated out of a World Series berth by the Astros, who I'll talk about them in a second. But this year, a lot of the Yankees' wounds, which eventually led to them not being able to win the AL East and then eventually just plummeting in the wildcard game, getting ran out of Fenway by Boston, were self-inflicted. Let's start with, let's just start with the basic structure of the New York Yankees, and that is Yankee Stadium. The shortest part of Yankee Stadium is in right field. It's a very cheap home run, sort of like the pesky corner in Boston, which, by the way, since, since I mentioned Fenway Park, look, I don't mind the Green Monster, but this right field nonsense that we have going on in Fenway, that we, somebody needs to face that. I don't know how, I don't know how anybody got away with that. I don't know how Major League Baseball didn't step in and say, um, that's weird. But there's no foul territory in right field in Fenway. And that pole looks like it's 30 feet closer than what it needs to be. Not to mention that there are stands that are in cutting the field, which means it's another very cheap home run. So that's my little diatribe about the Red Sox. Everything I'm going to say about the Red Sox today is pretty positive. But the... The Yankees' shortest field is right field, which means that it is a park tailor-made for left-handed hitting. Lo and behold, the Yankees have the most right-hand dominant roster and lineup in all of baseball. In an era where players can't hit the ball to the opposite field, the Yankees have one of the very few players that can hit for power to the opposite field, and that's Aaron Judge. So what do you do? In the, at the deadline, they go out and acquire left-handed power. They get Anthony Rizzo, who was pretty good for them down the stretch of the season, and then they also get Joey Gallo from the Texas Rangers. And look, Joey Gallo struggled the entire, his entire time with the Yankees. And Joey's going to be a free agent after this year, and I would not be disappointed if the Yankees declined to resign him. He has incredible power. He is an A++ defender, but as a hitter, he's pretty awful. If he's not doing damage with the home run ball or walking, he is always striking out, which means for a team that also doesn't run the bases very well, he's not moving anybody. And that was just the Yankees' whole issue over the course of the season is that they are very home run dependent. And I know I'm not breaking any news to anybody who follows baseball, but if they're not hitting home runs, they're hardly ever winning games. They don't run the bases well as a team at all, and that came back to bite them in the wild card game against Boston when Aaron Judge was gunned down at home plate. They don't play defense particularly well. They have a couple good defenders 
Aaron Judge should be a Gold Glove winner this year. Joey Gallo is a great defender. Brett Gardner, who they keep running out there in center field, I guess because of his defense, because he can't hit anymore. But outside of that, your infield is in shambles. They seem to have found a home for Glaber Torres at second base, at least. He's not playing shortstop anymore, and this new kid, Andrew Velasquez, is actually pretty exciting at shortstop. So the future there is okay. They don't have a good defensive catcher. I don't know what's going on with Gary Sanchez. And first base and third base are always a toss-up. So the Yankees won 93 games this season, I think is what it was, off of sheer power. And I believe they had the highest percentage of home runs hit in which were solo. So they don't even get on base. That damage is done in increments of one. You can't win in Major League Baseball like that. And then you get to the pitching, in which after the crackdown on sticky stuff, Garrett Cole completely bottomed out. And look, Jordan Montgomery and Jamison Tyone are pretty good. You know, Domingo Herman is all right after he came back from the suspension. And Luis Severino seems to be back and healthy. You're going to have to figure out what to do about Aroldis Chapman, who was erratic and inconsistent at times. And your bullpen, we don't know about. So the Yankees have so many issues, which made them such a head case to watch over the course of the season. Did they have, now, did they see progress from Giancarlo Stanton in terms of him becoming a hitter? Yes, because I I think he hit close to 280 or 290 this year, along with Aaron Judge hitting about 290 and and almost hovering around 300. But the Yankees leave this season with so many questions. What do you do at center field? Because you can't justify running Brett Gardner out there again, can you? Now, if you want to re-sign Joey Gallo, that might be a viable option at center field. But Aaron Hicks should be coming back next season. What do you do at the corners? Do you re-sign Anthony Rizzo? Well, I believe Anthony Rizzo is under contract, so I'm guessing that's what you do there, but you still have Luke Voigt. What do you do at catcher? Because Gary Sanchez is horrible as a defensive catcher, and at times is horrible as a hitter. And Kyle Higashioka, who started at catcher in the wildcard game, which I a move I get because he's the guy that usually catches Garrett Cole, but he's hitting 186. You're not going to keep up with the Tampa Bay Rays and the Boston Red Sox like that. And the whole culmination of this season, seeing that the Yankees can't play defense, seeing that they're very home run dependent, very solo home run dependent, and the fact that they don't run the bases very well. They're a very boring team to watch. The only reason I watch them is because they're my favorite team, and there are two teams in particular that I would watch more than the Yankees, and they are the Tampa Bay Rays and the Boston Red Sox, which, if you're saying that as a Yankees fan, is pretty depressing, that I would rather watch a game that features the Boston Red Sox over a game that features the New York Yankees. Why? Because the Red Sox just play a totally better brand of baseball, and it is a lot more fun to watch with guys like Devers and Bogarts and J.D. Martinez and the array of characters they plug in behind them, Alex Verdugo. You know, they've they've got great pitching. They've got an electric manager who has recovered from the uh, cheating scandal when the Red Sox won the World Series. So that's that's the Red Sox. Now, for the rest of the MLB playoffs, I do think the Houston Astros will come out of the AL. And I think we will see a matchup, a rematch between the Dodgers and the Astros from the year that the Astros caught, got caught cheating, the trash can year. I believe we're going to see a rematch of that. And hopefully that happens because once that, if that does come to fruition, then I will make my World Series pick there. But I think the Dodgers are the best team in the NL. And I'm not sure I'll get much pushback from that. But Even then, I like watching the Astros markedly more than I like watching my New York Yankees. And that's saying a lot because the Astros cheated the Yankees out of a World Series berth, which would have been their first since 2009. So all around, it's just a very depressing year to be a Yankees fan. And they have a lot of questions, including whether or not to bring back manager Aaron Boone, which 
judging by his performance this season in terms of his lineup choices, how he deployed his bullpen, which was all right at best, I would not I would not be mad if they chose not to bring back Aaron Boone, whose contract has expired. I would not be surprised and I would not and I would be perfectly okay if they went another direction. But yet, but that's the Yankees. Let's move to something more local and let's talk about the state of Oklahoma. Outside of it being what everybody stereotypically envisions Texas of being. University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University. This is usually the only time I mention those two schools in the same sentence unless we're talking about Bedlam, which is still about a month and a half away. And today we're going to talk about their fans. And I go to Oklahoma State, so I see that firsthand. And I watch a lot of Oklahoma, so I can see that over the TV. And the premise of this segment is, are the fans at these particular schools ruining their football teams, particularly ruining their quarterbacks? And that's a question that we do not ask very much, and that might sound a little weird, so let me explain. I'll start with Oklahoma State. Fans are literally enraged about Spencer Sanders. They are. They don't like it. I feel like I'm a, in a very, very, very minute minority when it comes to the opinion of Spencer Sanders. Now, do I think Spencer Sanders is, you know, one of the top QBs in the country? No, I'm a little bit more sober-minded than that. But I think he plays winning football, and I think he's the best quarterback for your team right now. And all these other idiots that clamor for Shane Illingworth, one day, one day, I hope you get your wish. Because we're going to see how absolutely unproductive that will be. But Spencer Sanders threw three interceptions the last time we saw him against Baylor. And to the fan, they see three interceptions. To the thinking football person, you see one that was on him, a badly missed overthrow. And then you see the two others, one in which the offensive lineman got pushed into his lap to where he couldn't step into his throw, and then the other that was dropped by the receiver and popped up into the hands of the safety. What more can the quarterback do? Just go an hour and a half down down the road to Norman, and it is up in the air who the Oklahoma starting quarterback is. Because Spencer Rattler was benched this weekend in the Red River, in the Red River rivalry against Texas after a pretty subpar performance through a quarter and a half. That following an explosion against Kansas State following the game in which he was booed by his own fans because they beat West Virginia without scoring 40 points. And West Virginia is a Big 12 team, and teams in the Big 12 always play each other tough. You're not going to blow everybody out. You're not going to score 50 points, Oklahoma fans. Every single game. This is still football. These are still Division I players, and they are still men that range, usually, from 250 pounds to 340. You still have to go out there, and sometimes you're, you're not going to be able to hit the big explosive plays. And Spencer Rattler quieted them to an extent, and then just didn't perform very well against Texas, and he was benched for Caleb Williams, and Caleb Williams actually engineered the comeback against Texas for Oklahoma to win that game and salvage a spot in the top five. I believe, I think they're three or four in the AP poll right now. And look, we don't talk particularly about, we talk always about fans being that home field advantage. But when it comes to Spencer Sanders and Spencer Rattler at the two Oklahoma schools, the big ones, I think fans are serving as a detriment. because. You saw Spencer Rattler maybe bounce back for one week, but he looks markedly different. There's something about his demeanor that has shifted ever since he was booed during a win. And as for Spencer Sanders, you know, since this is something I cover, you know, almost on a day-to-day basis doing pregame shows, doing prep for pregame shows, and then being at the games, and then re-watching the games. 
Spencer Sanders looks like he knows he does not have the support of the fan base. And you can say, and it's easy for all of us to say that, well, your your demeanor and your confidence is, ge- is getting shook by a lot of people who don't really know what they're talking about. That's, in the case of Oklahoma, 80,000 people that are booing you because you're not dropping 50. In the case of Oklahoma State, which is a pretty rabid fan base, a rabid, obnoxious fan base here in Stillwater, that's a lot of people that are clamoring for your job, even though as the starter, you are 4-0. And have only lost three games in one and now close to one and a half years. You can't say that doesn't affect people. And you can try to justify in your mind that most of these people don't really know what in God's name they're talking about because they don't. But eventually that does take a toll on you. And when you always have people nitpicking everything you do, it is a problem. I live in the state of Oklahoma most, most of the year, and then when I go home, I live in Texas. A lot of my opinions on this podcast can be lazily subbed up as liberal. And when people who do not understand the heart of what I say come at me relentlessly, it does take a, take a toll. Now, do I just go, do I get back up and record another podcast the next, the next week? Yes. But to say that that doesn't take a toll on you is wildly incorrect. In the case of Oklahoma, fans might be clamoring that they might have been right after Caleb, after Caleb Williams led the Sooners to the comeback win over the, long, over the Longhorns over the weekend. And some of them might ask, well, look, were we right? And the real football answer is we don't know yet. Because we haven't seen a team that is prepared for Caleb Williams. Texas was prepared to stop Spencer Rattler. And while Caleb Williams and Spencer Rattler are these, have a lot of these same uh, skills, Caleb Williams is a much better runner, and it's not really close. But the, the fall of Spencer Rattler and he has not played particularly well this season. I understand that. The fall of Spencer, uh, Spencer Rattler has been quite interesting because before the season, he was the projected number one overall pick in the 2022 NFL draft. And it was a toss-up between him and North Carolina's Sam Howell to be the first quarterback taken in the draft. Both of those guys have underperformed this year. Now, is there still time for Spencer Rattler to resurrect his season and at the same time his draft stock? Yes. And as a matter of fact, I do expect Spencer Rattler to continue starting for Oklahoma. And I think he's and I think he's going to be fine. But this is a very hostile environment for both of these quarterbacks. And you think about a team having to go win a game on the road being hostile, you won't think about your own fans and their hostility towards you at home. And that can end up serving to be problematic for both of these for both of these quarterbacks and consequently for both of these teams. And during the COVID pandemic where we didn't have a whole lot of fans particular uh depending on in the region of the country you were in, we lamented the fact that we didn't have the home field advantage for some teams in some sports, basketball, football, baseball, and other sports that have fans and that have fans being integral to the game. We never really talk about fans being detrimental to their own teams. But psychologically, that might be, that might be what's going on with Spencer Rattler and Spencer Sanders at the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, respectively. So it'll be very interesting to see how those two quarterbacks fare as their seasons continue to progress. All right, let's get to 
the main story for today. And today we are going to talk about voting rights <laughs> again. This is probably the third installment of me talking about this, and I'm not going to spend too much time on actual voting rights. You'll see where I'm going with this in a second. But first of all, why do I keep talking about this? And if you follow this podcast over the summer, I have brought this up numerous times. There's two reasons. Number one, because before any, before most things, I'm African American. And voting rights is a very touchy subject for me because it was not that long ago that people of my skin color were not allowed to vote in the United States of America. And when they were allowed to vote, there were numerous devices that were instituted to raise the opportunity cost almost to harm to health to prevent African-Americans from experiencing equal access to the voting ballot. So that's number one. Number two is because after that, I am an American, and I live in a country that has fantastic ideals, very revolutionary ideals. And when the country self-sabotages those very good ideals, that strikes a chord with me, and we've got to call that out. I feel like that's a citizen's duty, particularly one that has the communication skills that I do. I, I, I just feel like you have to talk about that, and you just can't let that slide. So we all know the assault on voting rights has been under well underway since the former President Trump's dribble about, you know, fraudulent elections and being cheated out of being president again. Um... What we've seen is a wave of anti-voter legislation across the country in multiple, multiple waves, actually. And it's gotten to the point now where there's been bills introduced called the For the People Act and other sort of pro-voter laws that have been introduced into Congress. Once already... Republicans have threatened or have used the filibuster to prevent those bills from coming to a vote. And Mitch McConnell has said that he himself will filibuster any upcoming pro-voter legislation. And that is our topic for today, is the filibuster. Because if you're going to take, a, take away voting or raise the opportunity cost exponentially to certain groups of people, which I've talked about in a previous podcast. You can go, you can go listen to that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast. If you're going to raise the opportunity cost so much so because you do not want a repeat of the 2020 election in which was the biggest exercise of democracy this country has ever seen, then to me you are being anti-American and you are self-sabotaging your own values. And if you're going to use the device known as the filibuster to do that, in my opinion, it is time to get rid of the filibuster. Now, I have held to this opinion for a long time, and we're going we're gonna to go through and see exactly why it is reasonable to have held that opinion for a long time. But I think today is an appropriate day to talk about what the filibuster is, how it came about, and why it is so easy to get rid of it, as well as American to get rid of it. So let's, let's, let's start. What, what on earth is this thing known as the filibuster, which is a quite funny word? And the filibuster randomly came about in the Senate in about the 1830s, in which, the Senate, in which senators thought it would be an interesting idea for the concept of unlimited debate of a bill. Now, Obviously, anything that has a cap on it is probably good, but unlimited debate is not really a big deal if it is unlimited debate. And as you're going to see throughout this segment, this is not debate. This is really unlimited drivel and diatribe and, quite frankly, sometimes stupidity. 
couple things to note about the filibuster, and let's start with this. Number one, the filib- the, uh, senators actually thought the filibuster could become a bad idea in the future. William King, a senator in Alabama in 1841, said this, quote, I tell the senator he may make his arrangements at his boarding house for the entire winter, end quote. Also, Whig Senator Henry Clay also warned of problems in the filibuster in the 1840s. So there are two prominent senators at before the country even turned 100 that warned that the filibuster could be problematic in the future. So let's so now let's talk about the con, the construction of the filibuster and let's and the point that we need to make here is that the filibuster is not constitutional. And what I mean when I say not constitutional is that it is not enshrined in the constitution. This is not a construct of American government. It's just there. As a matter of fact, when we talk about what constructs the Senate and the House, Article or Section Article One, Section Five of the Constitution actually says, "quote Each House may determine the rules of its proceedings." End quote. So basically, the House can determine its rules. This will usually be led by the majority, and the Senate as can can determine its rules as well. Which means that the Senate, led by Dem- by Democrat Senator from New York Chuck Sumer can actually get rid of the filibuster right now as you're listening to this if they wanted to. And they, and they probably wouldn't face much opposition in doing that because the Senate has such a majority in, as, in favor of the Democrats. Now, to, to that possibility and the real possibility of Democrats getting rid, getting rid of the filibuster, Re- Republican Senator and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky has said that he has vowed, quote, scorched earth on the Senate if they get rid of the filibuster. And we already know that the Senate doesn't really get much done anyway. We see prominent senators, especially John McCain, the late John McCain, who when they leave in their farewell speeches, lament the fact that the Senate doesn't really get anything done these days and is just another house that is battling itself. So Mitch McConnell is threatening further sabotage if they get rid of something that sabotages the point of the Senate. And again, as we continue on this, you'll, you'll see how this is. So the filibuster is basically where a senator can hold the floor for as long as he or she pleases and can be asked questions as long as they hold the floor by constituents or by people of the opposing party. And this wasn't really something that you saw a lot in the early days of the Senate. But toward the end of the 1800s and in well into the 1900s, the filibuster became rather prominent to the point where President Woodrow Wilson became increasingly frustrated with, Senate, with, with the Senate. In 1917, he actually prompted the Senate to adopt the cloture, the cloture policy. And this policy basically means that with a two-thirds majority, the Senate can end a filibuster. Thankfully, now it is just a simple majority and that can end debate and prompt vote uh, and prompt a vote on a particular bill. Now, this probably came a lot too late, unfortunately, because these because the filibuster, while it while it can promote endless debate and if used resourcefully can promote something that is actually productive, has been used very, very, very badly. As a matter of fact, here's the thing about how you judge anything that is invented. Let's talk about, and the, and the greatest way I can, I, the greatest analogy I can, I can give you here is the internet. The internet is something that, that increases efficiency and increases productivity in everyday life. However, the internet can be used very, very atrociously. And I don't need to go through how that is because there are numerous, numerous ways that the internet has ruined people's lives or derailed it. So now, similarly to the filibuster, we've never really seen, at least in a high-level instance, seen the filibuster used productively. 
And some of the greatest filibusters have been used rather appallingly. And the and the best example of that we can give you is Strom Thurmond in 1954. Strom Thurmond actually held the Senate floor for 24 hours and 18 minutes. Now, if he's now if he's holding the floor and you know trying to debate and amend and interact with his constituents about a bill, that is fine. However, Strom Thurmond in a premeditated move was trying to kill a civil rights bill. Thankfully, that bill eventually made it through both houses of Congress and restored equal rights to African-Americans and basically anybody in the country that is not white. Basically, every human, which, again, is something that is very explicitly stated in the United States founding documents. So, uh, so here's an example of what I, what I touched on earlier is somebody using the filibuster to sabotage the values of his own country, which if that sounds close to like treason, it's not it's not by technical definition treason, but in practice, it kind of is. So that's so that's Strom Thurmond, which, by the way, Strom Thurmond's political career after the failure to kill the civil rights bill never really amounted to much. As a matter of fact, today, if anybody knows history, they know Strom Thurmond as the racist weevil that tried to multiple times keep black people from becoming normal, being treated as normal Americans. That's all we know Strom Thurmond for. And the Senate and and the Senate filibuster reached its darkest point when this happened. Sam, I am. That Sam, I am. That Sam, I am. I do not like that Sam, I am. Do you like Green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam. I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam. I am. Yes, that is Senator Ted Cruz actually reading Dr. Seuss on the Senate floor. And if there's one thing that doesn't belong in the Senate chambers, other than fun-sized candy, as you saw Ryan Paul struggle with when he tried to filibuster a few years before that, <laughs> it's Dr. Seuss. So not only have we seen Strom Thurmond use it to try to kill probably one of the more, one of the more monumental bills of the time of the time and of all time in America. But we see this idiot wasting everybody's time reading a children's book and shamelessly doing so at that. Now, Senator Cruz was filibustering Ob- an Obamacare bill, which in and of itself, universal health care, there are there are very good positives to universal health care. And I'm not going to talk about that today. Maybe if it continues to be in the news, I might do a segment on it later. At a later time, but it is not out of the realm of possibility that universal health care can be in somewhat, at least to some people, a good thing. And that is something that Ted Cruz was not just debating. He was trying to kill. And that is the main goal of the filibuster. The main goal of the filibuster these days and really whenever it's used is not to de- is not to promote debate. It is to waste people's time, tire people out so they can stop debating the bill and eventually just give up and not bring the bill to a vote, which is a sabotage of all forms of government, in my opinion. So and so, so what are even politicians saying about the filibuster now? Well, Senator, Ted, or Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, who actually ran for president in the Democrat election of 2020, he said this, quote, for the sake of our vulnerable populations, for the sake of America doing big things again, that's that's really key right there. The filibuster has to be reformed. And that's a and that's a stance that a lot of people take. A lot of moderates have taken that the filibuster needs to be reformed, not entirely eliminated. I would be okay with the filibuster being reformed in a perfect world, in my perfect world, the filibuster would be gone completely. It serves no purpose. It's dumb. It's 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 stupid. 
Senator Maria Cantwell from Washington. She said, quote, we cannot let Senate procedure stand in the way of important issues like voting rights. And that's a more modern take on the filibuster is that now the filibuster, after being used to try to kill civil rights bills, trying to kill universal health care, is now trying to take away voting rights from a large amount of people. And let me refresh you who these amounts of people are. They are generally people of color. They are people in underserved communities. They are people in high-density communities. They are younger people. They're mostly people that are like in college. And in totality, they are people who are responsible for Donald Trump not being president right now. That is basically it. it. It is Republican constituents of the former president that have launched an assault on voting rights to make sure that the people who voted for, president, for now President Biden, a large amount of them, are not, cannot vote or at least cannot vote as easily as they did. And this is also coming on the hinge of numerous recalls and numerous, and numerous contests, including most recently in Arizona, where there was no tangible evidence that Donald Trump was cheated out of, the, out of a second term of the presidency. So basically, this assault on voting rights and now, the, and now Democrats trying to combat it and with Republicans threatening to filibuster is a solution that is looking for a problem. There is no real problem with unsecure elections. However, this is, in, this is incorrect dribble, drivel and diatribe that has been spewed by the former president and his constituents for years. And now it is coming to a culmination in one of the most basic values of the United States being ruthlessly under attack. But the most telling and really the most historically accurate view of the filibuster of why we should get rid of it is from Brian Schatz, a senator from Hawaii. And he says this, quote, the filibuster was never in the Constitution, which is correct, originated mostly by accident, also right on, uh, right on point, and has historically been used to block civil rights. And I would add now voting rights. He goes on to say no legislatures on Earth have a supermajority requirement because that's stupid and paralyzing. It's time to trash the Jim Crow filibuster, end quote. Now, I don't know about the Jim Crow filibuster part, but the word paralyzing is very true because it inhibits the Senate from doing anything, which is something everybody knows the Senate does. Nothing. It does nothing. Now, is this part partially because of like partisan blockade, which has been around probably since the end of George Bush term and into the the era of President Obama, possibly. But also the presence of the filibuster kills any sort of productivity and efficiency in the Senate. And since laws have to, after they are passed through the House, have to go through the Senate before they reach the president's desk, this, it, this basically inhibits America from doing anything. So now that I've gone through why we should get rid of the filibuster, what are some arguments for keeping the filibuster that people have? And the first one is that the filibuster pr promotes bipartisanship, which is something that is sorely lacking in America these days and which America could use a little bit of. We, we like when, when people, elected officials of both parties, can work together on certain things. Now, do I think this is something the former President Donald Trump destroyed? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, the but some people think that the filibuster can promote bipartisanship, which it really doesn't. It actually just promotes annoyance, and again, it leads to things just not getting done. Also, we have also seen the minority party use the filibuster to block monumental legislation that otherwise would have been bipartisan. Remember Strom Thurmond. This, this bill, the Civil Rights Bill, actually had a lot of bipartisan support. But Strom Thurmond, in his evil heart, decided that the bill should never even see a vote. And after he tired himself, after a full calendar day of filibustering, it finally got to the vote and finally landed on President and President Lyndon B. Johnson's desk for him to sign. And the one of the darkest eras of America was finally ended. So what else are arguments for keeping the filibuster? Well, it provides constraints on majority of power, on majority power. This this is in in theory, this is true. As a matter of fact, in fact, this is true. This does this does promote a strain of a constraint on majority power. However, this also constrains the election process. And what I mean by that 
is that this undermines elections because you are constraining the power of elected officials. If a particular party has gained a majority in the Senate, that means that more people across the country want that particular party to have a majority. So you are undermining the will of the people, which is a government for the people, which is the opening line in the Constitution. You are undermining that by using the filibuster to block their agenda. Now, am I saying that particular agenda is morally right or wrong or morally what's best for or really what's best for the country? It might not be. However, that is the agenda that has been elected by the people. Now, if you want to say that the agenda elected by the people might not always be the right one, you've got a point there. But then you have to go about combating that in ways that do not undermine the basic tenets of the United States, because that's what the filibuster is doing if you want to use that reasoning. Reason number three for why some people say we should keep the filibuster, it supports confidence in the American government, which is absolute nonsense. What, supporting confidence in the American government getting absolutely nothing done? We've seen an infrastructure bill that has been being worked on since January that is still not done. The American government gets nothing done already, and the filibuster will only make that problem worse and actually lessen confidence in the American government. And number four, the filibuster can reinforce the structure of the Senate, which is completely incorrect. The Senate was established and was functioning for at least half a century before the filibuster accidentally popped onto the scene. The filibuster, we have to remember, is not a a construct of the American government. It was not in the Constitution when it was written in, in 1789, and it was not a part of the Senate when it was formed in the late 1780s. This only came about around the 1830s, 1840s, and was not even being used until the late 1800s at that, that much. So it's, this is not a part of the Senate. It is not reinforcing a structure of the Senate. It is just a tool for wasting people's time, killing bills that fix the moral issues in America, and it's just fact-stupid, as Ted Cruz proved by reading Dr. Seuss on the Senate floor during a 13-hour filibuster. So, so that's the filibuster. And I feel like I gave you quite a lot of points here about the filibuster, and we are going to be talking about the filibuster until it is eliminated, because the way the country is going with the assaults on voting rights and possibly if in, in the In the unlikely case that Donald Trump becomes president again, there will be another attack on the freedom of speech and freedom to protest, particularly if it is done in a way that that man does not approve. So there are there are numerous attacks going on on the foundational principles of the United States. And if the and if Republicans continue to be in the minority of the Senate, they will continually use the filibuster to Make sure that bills that reinforce those tenets and those values of America do not see a vote, which is why the which is why you have to end the filibuster because it is undermining U.S. elections. It is undermining the U.S. tenets and the United States values, and is rendering the government handicapped and handcuffed to be able to get anything done and perform its duty to the American people. All right. Let's talk about Kyrie Irving. And look, I always call Kyrie Irving the weirdest athlete on in American sports and for right reason because he's Kyrie Irving. I wonder if he still holds to the opinion that the earth is flat. But <laughs> Oh man, Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving has been in the news obviously because of his refusal to get the coronavirus vaccine in light of a New York City law which would prohibit him from playing in any home games and two, and then the two games against the New York Knicks, so basically slated to miss 43 games of the season unless he gets vaccinated. So before we go any further, because the NBA has been under attack by a lot of people, led by, of course, the former president, This is not an NBA rule. The NBA has no such rule mandating players receive 
a COVID shot. This is not the NBA. You see the issue with Andrew Wiggins. You see the issue with Bradley Beal sometimes speaking out. This is not because of a rule that is in the NBA. This is because of local laws that are mandating vaccines for large indoor gatherings, which is a law that the NBA has says it will abide by. And the good thing about the NBA abiding, choosing to abide by these particular legislatures is because the NBA now seems like they are part of the normal American society. They don't want to make themselves seem like they are working in tow with a lot of these Democrat areas and therefore turning off more of the American population than they already have by embracing social justice, which isn't bad on their part, but they just happen to turn people off. So which brings us back to Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving is slated to miss, like I said, 43 games unless he gets vaccinated because he won't be able to play in any home games plus two games against the New York Knicks. And we're coming off of a year where Kyrie Irving missed numerous games at numerous points of the season because of personal issues that we know nothing about. We know Kyrie Irving has had a deleterious effect on multiple teams before. We know he's just a strange functioning human being to begin with. So where do the New York Knicks, the, the Brooklyn Nets, excuse me, go from here? If I am GM Sean Marks, and if I am head coach Steve Nash, I'm exploring a trade for Kyrie Irving. I'm getting Kyrie Irving out of there. Unless he concedes and gets the COVID vaccine, I'm trying to trade Kyrie Irving. Now, notice what I'm saying here. I am not saying that Kyrie Irving deserves to be unemployed because in the end, this is a personal decision for him. I'm not saying he should not be a player in the NBA. I am not saying he should be excoriated for this. I am saying what is best for the Brooklyn Nets, given the precedent of Kyrie Irving, his inconsistent availability, his strange demeanor, and the very odd way that he just goes about playing basketball and then his life, he clearly seems like he is interested in more things than basketball and sometimes more interested in, in sometimes more interested in those things than he is in basketball, which is totally fine because there are a lot of good things that Kyrie Irving is interested in. But the, comp, the combination of all of that can be deleterious to a team that is trying to win a championship and that is favored by many to win the NBA championship in the upcoming season. I would trade Kyrie Irving, get back a haul for him to reinforce the second unit of the Brooklyn Nets, and the Brooklyn Nets should still be good enough with Kevin Durant and James Harden in tow to still go out and win a championship. They do not need this hoopla surrounding Kyrie Irving that can possibly serve to the detriment of the team and result in them falling short for a second consecutive year. Because there are places all throughout the country where Kyrie Irving would be slated to be able to play every single game. You could trade him, say, I don't know, to Houston. Just trade him somewhere in Texas where there aren't many vaccine laws. You could trade him somewhere in Florida. I don't know who in the East, in the, in the Northeast, would really want to trade for Kyrie Irving. Definitely not the Boston Celtics. They don't need a, a second go-round of that. But there are places that would be suitors for Kyrie Irving. But one place that is not a suitor for Kyrie Irving is the Brooklyn Nets, and quite frankly, is not in New York. Now, let's hypothesize for a second and say that the Nets do the, what is most likely and hold on to Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving, unless he agrees to finally get vaccinated, would miss basically half the season. And they would have to re-ingratiate him and then make two separate game plans for all 81 games because of Kyrie Irving's lack of availability. And in most sectors of life, but particularly in sports, the best ability is availability because you cannot perform your ability if you are unavailable, either by injury or by policy. It would just be too much 
on the Brooklyn Nets, particularly with that young second unit that they have, for Kyrie Irving to still be there and be unvaccinated. And I think it would derail them. It would derail them to the point where Kevin Durant in a few years would opt to leave. Plain and simple. I believe Kevin Durant, if this gets too hectic, will leave. And then the Brooklyn Nets would be in danger of not just Kevin Durant leaving, but him going to New York City and playing for the New York Knicks. I believe that to be absolutely unequivocally possible. And it would be the first place I would look to if Kevin Durant ever left Brooklyn. And if you're and if you're Brooklyn, you hold all the cards here. Because you're good enough to win a championship without Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving kicks you over the top. But you have two of the most elite scorers, maybe two of the top three elite scorers in the NBA, in Kevin Durant and James Harden, who I would assume is going to come into this season in basketball shape. You have two of them. You've got one of the best shooters in the league in Joe Harris. And you have an array of other supporting cast that are pretty decent and serviceable. You don't need Kyrie Irving to wreck this like he did the Boston Celtics. So if Kyrie Irving gets his act together, the Brooklyn Nets are undoubtedly the favorites to win the NBA championship. But if he does not, trade him. Get back capital. Maybe get a first-round pick in there and continue to build for the future and the now. But you don't need to keep an unnecessary headache and media circus around because of Kyrie Irving. Not when you have James Harden and Kevin Durant on your team. Not to mention, you would also be getting rid of a lot of money on your books. There are a lot of benefits to moving on from Kyrie Irving if this continues. There really, really is. So that's where I stand with Kyrie Irving with the vaccine. I don't, I don't care as to why he's not getting the vaccine. I don't care that he isn't getting the vaccine. But in doing or in not doing so, he is jeopardizing his availability to go to work. And he is jeopardizing the ceiling of this team, which is to go get an NBA Finals. And if you think this all comes down to Kevin Durant, then you're wrong, because James Harden is also there. And the thing about James Harden is he does not have a ring. And we will see what his role in all of this ends up being. So Kyrie Irving is well within his right to not get the vaccine. Like I said, I don't care. But the Brooklyn Nets also hold the cards here and are well within their right to ship him somewhere else. And I think it would be the right decision if Kyrie Irving's stance solidifies. All right, that'll do it for me on the gray area. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a fun show. My name is Grayson Singleton. God bless. Keep cool. We'll see you next week. Go Pokes. (laughs) 